Hello, dear listeners. My name is Mark. I am the host of The Dark Mind Detective. This is just uh, to inform everybody, my up-and-coming podcasts that are going to get very dark and very disturbing. They're not going to be for the faint of heart. And after four years of running this platform, I finally feel I'm in a good mental place to tackle this material. It's worth mentioning that some of the material that I research is extremely dark. Like, for example, the Robert Picton atrocities. I've released maybe 10, 20% of my actual research, and it's just such a dark, disturbing, uh, dark hole of misery, atrocity, human life that was taken needlessly. And sometimes, you know, with life and managing other things, it can put me actually in a very dark place, and I have to take a step back. So after four years of of running this platform first as Vancouver True Crime and now as a dark mind detective, I feel like I'm in a good place to handle this this subject matter. I have children, and one thing I take very seriously is child abuse. If you've been following me for a while, there's two things you know I'm very passionate about, abuse to animals and abuse to children. Uh, children are our life, they are our future, and they are sacred, and they are precious. And the idea that people target, traffic, and abuse children is beyond monstrous. This is the next um, chapters of Dave McGowan's book, Programmed to Kill. And as I'm going through the book, I'm using it as a template as for this series, which I call Program to Kill. So we're going to be talking about first the Belgian monster, Mark Detroit. I'm also going to be adding this very strange case of Johnny Gosh, the Franklin cover-up that reached the very highest levels of Washington, D.C., the Epstein cover-up, which is such a rabbit hole in itself, and the histories of child abuse of the Catholic Church, the evils of the residential school that targeted our dear indigenous citizens and was such an atrocity jimmy savall out of the uk and also i'm going to be touching on some very disturbing uh child abuse situations that i discovered while researching these cases from my hometown of vancouver bc or metro vancouver these are some very highly disturbing cases that i felt that never got the mainstream media and i don't remember hearing about them uh, when they took place, I found these actually deep in archives. When I go, I, I spend a lot of times on the Wayback Machine, and I spend a lot of times on archives looking for news articles and cases. And I try to find original source material as stories break because I find, in my experience, that's when you usually get the best information. Over time, the information gets watered down and watered down and sanitized to make it more palatable for the polite public out there. So there's a few things I want to touch upon before I get into this episode. So this episode is simply going to be an archiving uh, episode. So there's a couple of goals uh, with my content. For the time being, I'm going to focus purely on my long-form content and taking a step back from 
short content, posting one minute videos, five minute videos, 10 minute videos. I'm not going to really be using my TikTok account very often. Maybe I might go on there to do a video or a live. But in time, once I finish my long uh, account, I'll be profiling missing persons cases because it'll be the perfect uh, platform for kind of one minute 10 minute type of, of content. So my focus right now is to really um, put out my long uh, form content, podcast, video essays, and also archiving interesting videos and documentaries that I find deep in archive machines. So if you please want to support me, you can simply support me right now by going to my YouTube channel and subscribing because I have been posting some very interesting documentaries on CIA fuckery that they've done as far as mind control and these horrible human experiments that they've done. So as I go through Programmed to Kill, the first part was mind control. Uh, I found a whole bunch of videos that I've been going through looking at and I'm going to be posting them on my uh, video platform as a way to archive the material so future researchers can have access to it. Because like I said, this stuff is really becoming sanitized. Uh, I watch, sometimes I watch newly created documentaries on Netflix and it's so watered down. I watched a Charlie Manson um documentary that was just posted on Netflix. It was the most watered down PG-13 I've ever seen, right? It's so again, my goal is to document real good sourced information, find actual credible human sources. I just uh, been collaborating with a new gentleman. His name is Matthew, and he's an insider like David, and he's been telling me some amazing um, stories about his life. And, and like I said, I love having first source uh, people to tell their stories and me being able to be, have the ability to document and use my platforms to get their stories out. I'm also working on a up-and-coming cybersecurity business. While researching child abuse and child abuse material and the trafficking of children, it is one of the reasons why I also have decided to create a cybersecurity business. And I am working with a few clients right now. The main reasons for developing the cybersecurity business was really to keep your children safe from predators. And because of the stories, and because of my research that I've seen, there is a rising dis and very disturbing demand for this content. And I feel extremely compelled to be part of this solution and helping to keep your children and my children safe from online predators. Um, I also will be producing educational materials and presentations and well as sourcing best tools that you can use and methods and technologies that you can use to protect your children online because it is a massively growing uh, problem. I'm seeing it more and more and more and it is very, very disturbing. And it's worth mentioning that my background in IT did also include selling educational uh, security software to school districts across North America, Canada, United States. And one of the tools that I used to sell was for classrooms for teachers to monitor 
uh, children's activity when they were on the computer. In some of the richer school districts, in the, especially in the United States, the private charter schools, children are given a laptop, not textbooks, and each year they get a laptop. I would sell them software that the teachers were able to monitor their activity on that uh, computer, even keystrokes, and also helping them with lessons and stuff like that. So I'm going to be utilizing all of the technology and all of my knowledge and sourcing new technology to help parents to keep their children safe and, most importantly, uh, identify predators and potential risks as they come online and try to target your children. A lot of predators will hide behind sock puppet accounts, try to use like VPNs and things like that. But everything you do on the internet leaves a bread uh, breadcrumb trail. And the more active these predators are, the easier it is to identify them. And some of them are not as sophisticated as others, and some of them are very sophisticated. But at the same time, uh, knowledge is power. So if you are having any type of issues, my door is always open to work with you. Right now I am working with some clients as I roll out some prototype technologies. My door is always open if you're facing a threat or having troubles with someone harassing you online. I set up an email for now as the best way to contact me specifically for the cybersecurity, the Hydra Shield is what I call it. Uh, the email is darkmatters777 at outlook.com. And please contact me. Whatever the issue is, big or small, always happy to help. Doors always open. So without further ado, uh, this is just in this episode is a me as a way of preserving. Uh, some of the material from Dave McGowan and for you to be able to listen to it at your convenience and understand uh, the importance of this book. I think this book is a very important book and it, it creates a great cornerstone to understanding some of these issues that I think are very important. Why is society the way it is? What are the kind of more behind the scenes? And like I said in my last podcast, my goal is not to make you believe everything that I believe in, but hopefully make you more of a critical thinker and look at things deeper than how they're presented to you. So thank you so much. My name is Mark. I am the Dark Mind Detective. And thank you for listening, my dear listeners. Introduction. Mind Control 101. T, he experimenters will be particularly interested in dissociative states from the abasement de nevo mental to multiple personality in so-called mediums, and an attempt will be made to induce a number of states of this kind, using hypnosis. From a declassified MK Ultra one document. It is probably safe to say that this is not your typical true crime book. It is. Instead, a journey into an even darker, more disturbing world, one that exists in the shadows of the world depicted in the hundreds of formulaic serial killer biographies that line the shelves of America's bookstores. For many readers, much of the information contained within these pages will be unfamiliar, and some of the theories and ideas that are discussed may seem rather bizarre. Perhaps the most controversial theory that readers will find themselves confronted with concerns a phenomenon commonly referred to as mind control. 
Although the concept of mind control has long been a staple of that polluted wellspring of information known as the conspiracy theory literature, where it often mingles freely with outlandish tales of reptilian aliens and paranormal activity, it has never been a polite topic of discussion in mainstream culture. The only expo sure that most people have had to the idea of mind control is through the often metaphorical and frequently absurd images that Hollywood has provided in a decades-long string of films, from The Manchurian Candidate and The Stepford Wives in the 1960s and 1970s, to such recent offerings as Conspiracy Theory and Zoolander, along with the remakes of both The Manchurian Candidate and The Stepford Wives. 11. One, the term MKUltra, while actually just one of many codenames used over the years by the U.S. intelligence community, is commonly used to refer to all CIA-spawned sword research on mind control. Most people are naturally quite skeptical of the notion that someone's thoughts and actions can be controlled by unseen actors. Particularly in Western culture, where the idea of free will is firmly indoctrinated, theories of mind control are inimical to the omnipresent mantra that we are all responsible for our own actions. It is quite likely then that scenarios involving mind-controlled killers, whether assassins like Lee Harvey Oswald or Sirhan Sirhan, or serial killers like Henry Lee Lucas or Charles Manson, will be summarily dismissed by many readers. Skeptics though should bear in mind that, contrary to perceptions, mind control is not a fictional creation of novelists and Hollywood screenwriters, to the contrary, there exists a substantial paper trail establishing that the U.S. intelligence community has devoted a vast amount of both human and financial resources, over a period of several decades, to the study of mind control. Along the way, luminaries of numerous social sciences have been recruited and co-opted. Detailing all the techniques and procedures that have received attention from the Central Intelligence Agency and its brethren is, unfortunately, well beyond the scope of this book. Point two, it is possible, however, to provide a rough sketch of what mind control really is, a sketch that will, it is hoped, help to demystify a phenomenon that is not, as it turns out, nearly so esoteric as it may at first appear to be. The basic methodology of mind control was revealed many decades ago by George Estabrooks, a prominent psychologist-slash-hypnotist who worked under contract to American intelligence agencies. In his book Hypnotism, first published in 1943, Estabrooks teased his audience by noting that the intelligent reader will sense that much more is withheld than has been told. While that was undoubtedly an accurate assessment, Estabrooks nevertheless did reveal enough to allow an informed reader to construct a reasonably accurate picture of the fundamentals of mind control. The degree to which any given person is susceptible to being mind-controlled is a direct function of that person's susceptibility to what are known as dissociative states. According to the psychiatric community, dissociative states, or dissociative. 12. Program to Kill Two all of the following books focus directly or indirectly on CIA-sponsored mind control research, Jose M. R. Delgado, Physical Control of the Mind, Harper and Rowe, 1969, Donald Bain, The Control of Candy Jones, Playboy Press, 1976, Walter Bauard, Operation Mind Control, Dell Publishing, 1978, Peter Watson, War on the Mind, Hutchinson, 1978. 
Peter Schrag Mind Control, Pantheon, 1978, John Marks The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, Times Books, 1979, Martin Lee and Bruce Schlein Acid. Dreams, Grove Press, 1985, and Gordon Thomas' Journey into Madness, Phantom, 1989. All of these titles contain pieces of the puzzle, but all contain varying amounts of disinformation as well, as do more recent titles. Disorders include amnesia, fugue state, and what used to be called multiple personality disorder, MPD, but is now generally referred to as dissociative identity disorder, DID. All of these terms describe the same basic phenomenon. A person who is seemingly in control of his or her actions over a given time period is unable, at a later date, to recall or account for those actions. As with any category of mental illness, there is no dividing line that separates those who are diagnosed with dissociative disorders from those who are normal. Virtually everyone possesses the ability to experience dissociative states. Many people, for example, are familiar with the phenomenon sometimes referred to as driving on autopilot. The scenario generally plays out as follows. You suddenly snap out of it just as you are pulling into your parking space at work, and you realize, to your horror, that you can't remember anything since leaving your house. If this has happened to you, then you have experienced being in a disso. Sciative state. In essence, you drove to work while in a fugue state, and you later had amnesia. In a similar vein, it could be said that an alter personality, which you have no conscious awareness of, drove you to work. In any event, it is clear that someone piloted your car to work in a safe and reasonable manner, and it was someone other than you. Many people are also familiar with another common example of a dissociative state. You are deep in thought, oblivious to everything around you, possibly working on the solution to one of the world's great mysteries, when suddenly your silent meditation is interrupted, perhaps by an unexpected noise, or by someone calling your name or tapping your shoulder. As you snap out of it, you suddenly realize, much to your dismay, that you cannot remember what it was that you were so deep in thought about just moments before. If you have ever had a similar experience, or if you are familiar with the dreamlike state that some PEO PLE attained just before falling asleep, or while engrossed in a book or television pro. Graham, then you have experienced being in a dissociative state of consciousness. While the ability to dissociate is likely universal, or nearly so, some people are clearly more susceptible to dissociative states than are others. There is little case tie-in that someone's innate ability to dissociate can be greatly enhanced, although not necessarily by ethical means. The most severe of the dissociative disorders, MPD did, is in almost all cases created by psychological trauma so severe that the traumatic episodes cannot be integrated into the experiences of the core personality. By far the most common cause of MPD is early childhood trauma, usually, but not always, resulting from horrific abuse by a parent or other adult guardian. Dr. Frank Putnam noted in 1989 that he was struck by the quality of extreme sadism that is reported by most MPD victims. Many multiples have told me of being sexually abused by groups of people, of being forced into prostitution by family members, or of being offered as sexual enticement to their David McGowan 13 Mother's Boyfriends 
After one has worked with a number of MPD patients, it becomes obvious that severe, sustained, and repetitive child abuse is a major element in the creation of MPD. Dr. Deirdre Barrett, writing in 2001 for Psychology Today, offered a similar observation, dissociators have the following traits in common, many such subjects reported a history of child abuse. Although some remembered this directly, some had been told by others that they had been battered, other dissociators who had not been abused had suffered childhood traumas such as prolonged, painful medical conditions and before the age of 10 experienced the deaths of their parents. As mental health professionals have long recognized, the normal human reek tie-in to highly stressful situations is what is known as the fight-or-flight response. Children, however, typically lack the ability to either fight off or flee from their attackers and abusers. This is particularly true, of course, for very young children. The human brain, that wonderfully resilient organ, therefore, reacts in the best way that it can under the circumstances, it allows the child to mentally flee from the situation. When the abuse is of an extreme and sustained nature, the brain's response is to build a virtual wall around the traumatic experiences by creating a separate and distinct alter personality to deal with current and future episodes of abuse. Although MPD-DID is a disorder listed in the DSM-4, the veritable bible of the psychiatric community, the public generally looks upon the notion of multi-PLE personality with a healthy dose of skepticism, a skepticism encouraged by a news and entertainment media apparatus that generally mocks and ridicules the condition, and by a not insignificant number of psychologists and psychiatrists who deny the existence of MPD-DID, strangely enough, many of the most visibly and vocal members of the denial crowd tend to be psychologists and psychiatrists who have received funding from the CIA. In November 2001, researchers in Melbourne, Australia, conducted what the Herald Sun described as a world-first study of multiple personality disorder. The goal of the study was to help resolve the dispute within the mental health community. The conclusion reached by the researchers at least one of whom had been skeptical of the disorder before working on the project, was that individuals who suffer multiple personality disorder are not faking their alter egos. The study involved comparing the brainwave patterns of people claiming to be suffering from the disorder with the brainwave patterns of actors portraying the condition. While the actors gave outwardly convincing performances, the researchers found that there were distinct changes in the brain of sufferers as they switch personalities, while those changes were not detected in the brains of those who were just acting the part. 14. Program to Kill So how does all of this relate to the concept of mind control? In the simplest possible terms, what the term mind control refers to is the process of first enhancing an unwitting subject's natural ability to dissociate, creating, in essence, the condition of multiple personality disorder, and then controlling that subject's dissociative states, by creating one or more alter personalities that are effectively under the control of others, and that are unknown to the core personality. But can this really be done? Is mind control is a real phenomenon, or merely the product of the fertile imaginations of various conspiracy theorists and self-described survivors? The answer to that question lies in the answers to several other questions, beginning with do dissociative states occur naturally in the human species? 
as anyone who has ever driven their car to work on autopilot or been caught daydreaming or spacing out can testify the answer is yes although the vast majority of people would not normally use the term dissociative state to describe the experience can the naturally occurring ability to dissociate be enhanced the answer here also appears to be yes albeit with the caveat that enhancing that ability generally requires the infliction of severe trauma preferably during the vulnerable childhood years would the CIA and other US intelligence agencies be restrained morally or ethically from inflicting such trauma how this question is answered depends largely upon the individual readers political orientation and level of awareness of national and world events Serious students of covert operations know that the CIA has a long and very sordid history of sponsoring countless assassinations, civilian massacres, violent coups, and barbaric torture-slash-interrogation centers, and that is just the short list. This bloody, and very well-documented, three record suggests that there is little, if anything, that the CIA will not attempt to justify in the name of national security. Documents released through FOIA requests have revealed that, at the very least, the agency has not shied away from funding and sponsoring studies in which very young children have been dosed with LSD continuously for several weeks. If we accept that dissociation is a real and naturally occurring human ability, and that the tendency to dissociate can be enhanced, and that the intelligence. David McGowan, 15. 3 C. William Bloom's Killing Hope, Common Courage Press, 1995 for a detailed look at some of what the intelligence community really does with your tax dollars. Communities' hands are not tied by ethical concerns, then the final, and most critical, question becomes, can enhanced dissociative states, once created, be controlled? George Estabrooks was clearly convinced that that was indeed the case. He claimed that once a person's core personality had been split, it was then possible to control one or more of the alter personalities, without the conscious awareness of the primary personality. This process, according to Estabrooks, allowed the intelligence community to create super spies, unwitting agents who were willing to follow any orders unquestioningly. Among other duties, these super spies made ideal couriers, since they could be fed sensitive information while in a controlled dissociative state and thereafter have no conscious awareness that they were transporting important data. Even under torture, the super-spy would reveal nothing, for as far as he, or she, was aware, there was nothing to reveal. Someone at the receiving end who was familiar with the super-spy's program. Ming, however, could readily extract the information, after which the super-spy would remain blissfully unaware that a mission had been successfully completed. As dubious as Estabrook's scenario may at first appear to be, it is not so very different from the common phenomenon of driving on autopilot. Let us imagine that you have managed, once again, to find yourself at work with no idea how you got there. You can remember nothing beyond pulling out of your driveway. So you decide, out of curiosity, to pay a visit to a skilled hypnotist for who succeeds in putting you under, so to speak. While in the hypnotic trance, another term for a dissociative state, you would be able to relate to the hypnotist and anyone else in the room all the mundane details of your drive to work. Once brought back to a normal state of consciousness, however, you would still have no conscious memory of your drive to work unless instructed otherwise by the hypnotist. 
You would. 16. Program to kill. For hypnotism is another phenomenon that is regarded with considerable skepticism by both the general public and the scientific community, although there are signs that that is beginning to change. Despite its long history, scientists have wondered whether hypnotism is a genuine psychological state or a gimmick, noted the National Post, but recent research shows it causes measurable changes in the brain. A number of mainstream media articles in recent years have begun to acknowledge the effectiveness of hypnosis, especially as a means of pain control. Lama's childbirth techniques, for example, are really just a form of self-hypnosis. Psychology Today noted that hypnosis is not an all-or-nothing phenomenon, but rather a continuum. Most people can be hypnotized to some degree, the only question is how far. The same can be said, of course, of the ability to dissociate, which largely determines SUS susceptibility to hypnotism. Have served, in essence, as a super spy. All that is missing from the equation is the element of control. And how would that control be attained? Estabrooks shied away from the details, only alluding to the severe psychic torture that is required to split a person's core personality and then exert control over the alter personalities that are created. The trauma is often referred to euphemistically as a form of hypnotism. In one passage, for example, Estabrooks noted that multiple personalities are caused by a form of hypnotism in the first place. We will see that emotional shock produces exactly the same results as hypnotism. Later, he came a little closer to the truth, multiple personality, can, be both caused and cured by hypnotism. Remember that war is a grim business. Suppose we deliberately set up that condition of multiple personality to further the ends of military intelligence. Still later, he came even closer, everyone, can, be thrown into the deep state of hypnotism by the use of what I termed the Russian method no holds barred deliberate disintegration of the personality by psychic torture the subject might easily be left a mental wreck but war is a grim business war is indeed a grim business as Estabrooks was apparently fond of stating but that argument hardly justified the type of research the doctor endorsed including using children who are notoriously easy to hypnotize as research subjects. Decades after the publication of Estabrook's seminal work, another psychiatrist-slash-hypnotist, by the name of Paul Verdier, wrote an obscure book entitled Brainwashing and the Cults, an expose on capturing the human mind. Verdier's manuscript began on a promising note, with this acknowledgement, it must be accepted that brainwashing is now being used here, in the United States, by devious persons with personal gain in mind. Unfortunately, the author followed that bold proclamation with a woefully inaccurate accounting of who those devious persons might be. He did though provide a reasonably good descript. Tie-in of the process of mind control, although Verdier, like Estabrooks, did not use the term mind control. By Verdier's account, the objective of the would-be brainwasher is to access those areas of the brain that are outside of the individual's conscious control. This is accomplished, the doctor explained, by circumventing the normal inhibiting response of the cerebral cortex, so that an individual's voluntary conscious self-control will be bypassed or short-circuited. In order to disable what Verdier referred to as the brain's cortical block, all of the following were recommended, 
alcohol, euphoric drugs, isolation, solitary confinement, and the most dramatic and unique item in the brainwashing arsenal, hypnosis. All of these brainwash ING techniques, significantly, have been exhaustively researched by the CIA. David McGowan 17 Verdier went on to explain that in order to achieve truly lasting states of brainwashing, or mind control, it is necessary to subject the victim to profound and deep emotional states. The recommended emotional states are fear, shock, and anxiety, all of which have an intense disinhibitive effect on the human brain. Even more effective is pain, because, according to the eminent neurologist, Dr. Wilder Penfield, five sensations of pain from the muscular sensory system enter the subcortical brain regions directly. With a passage seemingly lifted from Estabrook's writings, Verdier left no doubt that pain and fear are the most useful items in the MKUltra toolbox. Russian political scientists do support the belief that given enough punishment, all the people in any time or place are susceptible to hypnotic control. Six Verdier echoed other of Estabrook's beliefs as well, including the idea that brainwashing could and should be widely utilized for. Benevolent Purposes 7 and the notion that children are ideal candidates for Mind Control Programming Brainwashing can be slow, insidious and sure when applied to children early in life. It is likely that there is a short period of time following corporal punishment when the child is in a state of decortication, hypnosis, so to speak. This is the ideal time to plant the positive instructions for better behavior in the future. What the good doctor considered corporal punishment and positive instructions was left to the reader's imagination. The vulnerability of children to dissociative states brought on by traumatic abuse is one of the reasons that the CIA and other intelligence agencies have played key roles in the creation of relatively mainstream satanic groups, as well as in denying the existence of underground satanic cults engaged in violent criminal enterprises. Some of the available evidence suggests that an array of satanic groups have served as intelligence agency fronts for mind control operations, which actually makes perfect sense, considering that if the goal is to severely traumatize. 18. Program to Kill 5. Dr. Penfield was an associate of the notorious medical torture practitioner and MK Ultra operative, Dr. David Ewan Cameron. 6. This is a very common form of disinformation that is found frequently in the writings of CIA-affiliated writers. Acknowledge that mind control is a real phenomenon, but then blame it all on those godless communists. Other agency-penned manuscripts deny that mind control exists at all, which is another common form of disinformation. 7. The final chapter of Verdier's book, entitled Benevolent Brainwashing in the Future, contains the following recommendation, The Process of Brainwashing could be used effectively and economically to solve many of society's pressing human problems which, until now, have seemed virtually unsolvable. Children, then surely nothing compares to the seemingly outlandish stories told by those who have survived what has been dubbed Satanic Ritual Abuse SRA. Verdier took note in his book of the fact that one of the most pronounced emotional experiences that a human being can undergo is having his or her life threatened. Threats of death are used as a basic tool by brainwashing communists. Even among them, however, this threat is used sparingly, for they know that humans quickly adapt to this type of threat, especially if it is repeatedly given but never carried out.
In order to avoid this routinization of stressful emotional situations, they have been known to casually execute prisoners for the apparent effect it has on others. The actions that Verdier predictably attributed to brainwashing communists precisely mirror the stories that have been told repeatedly by self-described survivors of ritual abuse. These victims speak of receiving frequent death threats directed against both themselves and their fam. Eilie members. They speak also of having those threats reinforced through their forced witnessing of, and even participate in, the killing of others. There has been a tremendous amount of energy expended to discredit all such stories. At the forefront of the movement to deny the validity of the stories told by countless survivors is the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, a group led by a truly vile coalition of CIA-funded psychiatrists and accused, and in some cases, convicted pedophiles. Also playing a key role in the movement are Paul and Shirley Everly, the authors of a purportedly authoritative book entitled The Politics of Child Abuse. The Everly's book attempts to lay the blame for virtually all child abuse accusations and prosecutions on overzealous prosecutors, therapists, and parents. That argument might be a little more credible, however, if the Everly's themselves were not known to Los Angeles police as distributors of child. Pornography, a fact that media outlets conveniently and rather consistently ignore while touting the Everly's as authorities in the field of child abuse. Contrary to conventional wisdom, claims of ritual abuse are certainly not a modern phenomenon. Such claims have actually been around for quite some time, and they were given legitimacy by no less an historical figure than Sigmund Freud. Over 100 years ago, Freud recognized that ritual abuse was likely the PRI married cause of the psychological problems that he observed in his female patients. Author Kevin Marin noted that Freud had commented on the marked similar ITY between what, his patients, told him and the accounts of the witchcraft confessions of the 16th century. In a letter to a colleague, written in January 1897, Freud pondered, but why did the devil who took possession of the poor things invariably abuse them sexually and in a loathsome manner? Why are their confies science under torture, so like the communications made by my patients in psycho? Logical treatment? If Freud were alive today, he might well add, and why are the... David McGowan 19 Communications made by my patients a century ago so like the stories told to therapists today by survivors of SRA? Should this remarkable consistency spanning several centuries be attributed to some kind of recurring mass hysteria? Or can it best be explained by the fact that, as historians, and the Chicago Tribune, have noted, satanic cults have been documented in Europe and America as far back as the 1600s? Has there always been something dark and evil lurking in the shadows, only occasionally raising its head, at which times its existence is denied, its perpetrators cast as victims, and its real victims mocked and ridiculed? To ponder such a question, alas, requires calling into question some of our most fundamental beliefs about the nature of the world we live in, and that is a decidedly unsettling venture. Perhaps when viewed in the context of a covert, state-sponsored mind control program, some readers can begin to understand not only why there might be those who are motivated to inflict appalling levels of abuse on some of America's children, 
but also why so much effort would be expended attempting to discredit claims of horrific abuse if the claims are in fact valid. Truth be told, the stories told by survivors of ritual abuse tend to be self-discrediting. One of the potential benefits, therefore, of cloaking mind control active ITY in satanic rituals is that the operations are largely immune to disclosure. Even if an operation is uncovered, the stories told by the children tend to be so outlandish, so far removed from the world that we know, that the claims are easily cast aside as the product of a child's fertile imagination. In May 2000, however, a report commissioned by the United Kingdom's Department of Health concluded that satanic ritual abuse was not, as an earlier report ordered by the Conservative government found in 1994, a myth. The Independent noted, in anticipation of the report's release, that a specially commissioned government report will this week conclude that satanic abuse does take place in Britain. It will say that its victims have suffered actual abuse and are not suffering from false memory syndrome. Eight one of the primary authors of the controversial report was therapist Valerie Sinison, who reportedly had personally treated 126 survivors of ritualized abuse. According to a report in The Guardian, Sinison has said 46 of her patients claimed to have witnessed murder of children or adults during ritual abuse seer monies that had involved up to 300 people at a time. Some 70% of the reported. XX program to kill. 8. The timing of the report on this landmark study was rather curious. The Independent published the story on April 30, 2000, otherwise known as Walpurgisnacht, Night of the Witches, or Beltane. Along with the summer and winter solstices, Walpurgisnacht is among the most significant of the occult holidays. Abuse was carried out by pedophiles and the rest by Satanists. The Independent added that 16 of the victims had also claimed they had seen induced Abertians or babies killed. Sinison's research has led her to conclude that some children are born for the purpose of abuse and are not registered on birth certificates. That claim has been voiced repeatedly by U.S. victims as well. In a report from February 2000, the Independent revealed that Sinison had photographs documenting horrific injuries to children and the existence of ceremonial sites with the remains of mutilated animals. The same article noted that Scotland Yard had begun an investigation. It is unclear where that investigation led, as it is unclear what the official response was to the release of Sinison's study. Media outlets appear to have dropped the story just before the report was issued. Many readers of the press accounts that preceded the report's release were no doubt predisposed to dismiss Sinison and her fellow researchers as cranks. Where? Exactly, readers were left to ponder, was this alleged photographic evidence show ING children with horrific injuries? And where is the evidence of ritual murders being performed? As it turns out, shockingly enough, such evidence is not that difficult to find. As hard as it may be to believe, especially for readers conditioned to think that all such stories are nothing but urban myths, photographic evidence of exactly the sort described by Sinison is being peddled all over the internet. But even with such compelling evidence being widely circulated, many will still be tempted to discount the stories told by the survivors of such abuse. Skeptics are advised to keep in mind the words of Detective Robert Samandel of the Chicago Police Department, 
It's difficult for us to believe such crimes are occurring, but they are all over the United States. Indeed, all over the world, as we shall see in the next chapter. In the early 1950s, the CIA was looking for specially gifted subjects to study dissociative states, which could be induced and controlled to some extent with hypnosis and drugs. Arlene Tyner, writing in Probe Magazine, July-August 2000. David McGowan.